This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. No, I'm just the moving crew. <laughs> I'll step up for a second. Good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm sure many of you will have been to events before, but you won't have been to Kay Ryan before, and this is so exciting this evening. I'm Robin Marsak, Director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and we all say when we introduce people that it's a huge pleasure to have them here, but I can't express to you how huge this pleasure is. This is Kay's second visit to Scotland and when she came in 2011, after she left, she said she felt there was something in her family or somewhere that made her feel very akin to Scotland. So I think we should take the opportunity to claim her if we can. As you may know, she was uh, the 16th Poet Laureate of America, appointed in 2008, and she used that appointment to champion community colleges like the one in Marin County, California, where she taught for over 30 years. Her first volume was published when she was 40, and the best of it, New and Selected Poems 2010, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. We've got here in the, in the book tent her British edition, which is called Odd Blocks. I loved the New York Times comparison of reading Kay Ryan's poems to consuming freshly made cocktails. First the smile, and then the bite. <laughs> but I'd say that her poems are more like stone skimmed over water. We admire the craft and the skip the wit and the elegance of the launch and the landing, and then we see the ripples slowly expanding and feel the effects reaching unexpected places in our minds and in our hearts. At the Scottish Poetry Library, we've been looking forward to this reading for months. Will you join me in giving Kay Ryan a warm welcome back to Scotland? Thank you, Ryan. I'm pour your water. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure and honor to be part of the uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival, known worldwide. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you, Robin, for the beautiful introduction. Uh, one of the nice things, uh, one of the things I get to enjoy is uh, these artful introductions that are poetry themselves. Uh, uh, I, I, I like that stone skipping thing very much. Um, I thought I would begin with my only actual Scottish tribute poem. Uh, uh, and it doesn't come following my visit to Scotland. It comes long before it from something that I was watching on the nature program on, on public television uh, about osprey. Uh, and I like to get this poem over with early because it has a tongue twister in the middle. And uh, uh, later in the evening, uh, it, well, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of a sobriety test is what it is, <laughs> actually. Uh, it's easier earlier in, the, earlier in the day. So this is called Osprey. The great taloned osprey nests in Scotland. I later found out that the, the osprey also nests in my own Marin County, right above San Francisco. 
And, but I, that wouldn't work, would it? The great talent osprey nests in Marin County. No. The great talent osprey nests in Scotland. Her nests the biggest thing around. A spiked basket with hungry, ugly osprey offspring in it. For months she sits on it. He fishes, riding four-pound salmon home like rockets. They get all the way there before they die. So muscular and brilliant, swimming through the sky. Uh, when I decided to put this poem in my uh, uh, selected for 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 this British volume, uh, I uh, I changed the poem a little. It used to say, "He fishes riding two pounds salmon home like rockets," but but I didn't think two pounds. See, I never look anything up. This was, I wrote this before Wikipedia became so available. Uh, and and, I, and so I, I just used my little mind, you know, and I thought, well, I don't think a bird could hold much more than a couple pounds, you know. So, so I wrote two-pound salmon, and then always when I re re read the poem, I would think, that just doesn't sound like much of a salmon, you know. We've got to get a little more heft to it there. So I... I uh, I was changing it, and some friends were over who actually did have their phones and could look up information. And, and we looked up, they looked up the range of, of weights that an osprey could actually carry. And four pounds was definitely in the realistic range. So uh, that explains that. Uh, <laughs> now, this poem is, is inspired by Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, volumes to which I have often returned for inspiration. Um, you, you know Ripley's here, don't you? Okay, okay. Um, in this case, uh, the matter under, uh, uh, that, that Ripley was marveling at was this. A plain, ordinary steel needle can float on pure water. Now, probably some of you tried that as children, where you would float a, a needle on top of a water. Is that, on top of water. Is that true in a water glass? Anybody do it? I can't see you because I've got these terrible lights in my eyes, but yes? Yes, oh, thank God, somebody has, yeah, yeah. Uh, it helps if you take the needle and lower it down. If you open up a couple of paper clips so that it turns into little hooks, you put the needle across it and drop it right down to the surface of the water and it will float, we'll do that. So, here's the poem. Uh, who hasn't seen a plain, ordinary steel needle float serene on water as if lying on a pillow. Well, it turns out lots of people actually haven't seen that. Uh, uh, it's more rhetorical than I had meant for it to be. Um, who hasn't seen a plain, ordinary steel needle float serene on water as if lying on a pillow? The water cuddles up like jello. It's a treat to see water so rubbery, a needle so peaceful, the point encased in the tenderest dimple. It seems so simple when things or people have modified each other's qualities somewhat. We almost forget the oddity of that. Uh, I was, to use one of your terms, gobsmacked 
to learn that uh, a number of people have used this as a wedding poem. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you know, sometimes I don't have much faith in people, and I, I'm wrong not to have faith in people. Now, this poem is called Winter Fear, and I thought it would be a good, a, good, uh, a good poem for this climate. This can happen anywhere. I'm going to read this poem twice, all right? It's very short, so it won't be too big of a burden, but uh, I will. And the reason I do that is that I think poems go by awfully fast. I, I think that the real condition in which to receive a poem is when you have a book in front of you and you're by yourself and you're reading and it you're constituting it in your own mind in your own voice and so this business of somebody reading it to you makes it go by too fast uh, winter fear is it just winter or is this worse is this the year when outer damp obscures a deeper curse that spring can't fix when gears that turn the earth won't shift the view, when all the clouds, when the, when clouds won't lift, though all the skies go blue. You know, I thought Osprey was the hard one to read. It turns out this one is, apparently. Um, I, I didn't know that I was going to be rereading it because I was going to flub it. Uh, is it just winter, or is this worse? Is this the year when outer damp obscures a deeper curse that spring can't fix? When gears that turn the earth won't shift the view? When clouds won't lift, though all the skies go blue? Uh, I'm a big reader of murder mysteries. Uh, and this is a mystery which was written by a British writer, Cyril Hare. You know him? Somebody knows him, okay. This is from Death is No Sportsman, uh, one of his titles. And here is the epigraph. Your husband is very lucky, observed Smithers, to have ornithology to fall back upon when fishing fails. <laughs> to me, that sounded like the ideal life. I'm. I'm always looking for less, you know, I'm sort of the anti-Oliver Twist. Less, please, you know. Uh, uh. So this is called When Fishing Fails. When fishing fails, it sounds, it sounds kind of Yeatsian at first, but don't get your hopes up. Uh, uh. When fishing fails, when no bait avails, and nothing speaks in liquid hints of where the fishes went for weeks. And dimpled ponds and silver creeks go flat and tarnish. It's nice if you can finish up your sandwich, pack your thermos, and ford this small hiatus toward a second mild and absorbing purpose. This poem, I almost gave this uh, 
poem, uh, a, a subtitle, and called it an incantation. But I, I hope that it would be just be obvious that it is, in a sense, an, an incantation. Uh, it's called Deer, and and it seems to be about deer, but it's but it's actually about trying to get going, which is for a writer and for any. I think all of us in every aspect of life about the hardest thing to do. And if you can get going, something can get happening. So this is this is this is getting something going. That the that process of, of making something begin. Dear. And this this mentions the Emperor's Park. I, I think it would be nice if it was the Queen's Park for here, but we can't make it we can't make it be the Queen's Park. Um, to lure a single swivel ear one tentative twig of a leg or a nervous tail here is to mark this place as the emperor's park rife i say rife with deer for if one leaf against the littered floor be cleft with the true ark all this lost ground and more becomes a park everywhere the nearest deer signals the nearest dark a buck looks up. The touch of his rack against wet bark whispers a syllable singular to deer. The next one hears and lifts. The next one, the next head stops and shifts deeper and deeper into the park. Uh, another animal poem. Uh, this poem is called Turtle, and it comes from a time when I was terribly frustrated. Uh, it, and that was a very long time, so I had plenty of time to write this poem. Uh, it, and I think you'll notice a kind of a, it's almost like a bunch of, of set mouse traps. It's, uh, there, there are so many metaphors waiting to go off in it. Uh, it's it's too packed, it's kind of enjammed, and it's, it's, the, it's the body of frustration. Um, I was having to have a kind of patience that I didn't have. Turtle. It also has my greatest rhyme in it, where one word rhymes in the following line with three words. <laughs> one word is, okay, it, it's, I'm telling you, it's, listen for this. Who would be a turtle who could help it? A barely mobile hard roll, a four-oared helmet. She can ill afford the chances she must take in rowing toward the grasses that she eats. Her track is graceless, like dragging a packing case places, and almost any slope defeats her modest hopes. Even being practical, She's often stuck up to the axle on her way to something edible. With everything optimal, she skirts the ditch which would convert her shell into a serving dish. She lives below luck level, never imagining some lottery will change her load of pottery to wings. Her only levity is patience, the sport of truly chastened things. Anybody get the rhyme? What? 
No. <laughs> Packing case places. Packing case places. I like that very much, but no. Uh, although I'm fond of it. Uh, I'm, I'll tell you. Okay, listen to this. I'm going to read the lines again. Who would be a turtle who can help it? A barely mobile hard roll. A, a four-oared helmet. She can ill afford the chances she must take. See? It's right there. A forward. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know how that happens, really. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just private fun, but then I like to make it public if possible. You know? If I get the chance, you know. A lot of it remains private. Uh, this poem is called Doubt. Uh, and it... Um, uh, you know, writers use what they have a lot of. You know, we use available materials. I've always had plenty of doubt, you know, so it was a subject that uh, was near at hand. Uh, write what you know, remember that? Uh, so, and this refers to, um, this refer refers to the person from Porlock. Most of you will know that the person from Porlock is the person who, in in uh, who interrupted uh, Coleridge when he was writing Kubla Khan, so he said. Could have been the drugs wearing off. But in any case, he couldn't go on with Kubla Khan. And the person from Porlock in poetry ever since has been the, 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 the interrupter, the person who comes and interrupts. So uh, the, inter the person from Porlock appears in here. Oh, this also has a, a spurious fact uh, in it. I think you'll know when we get to that. I like the texture and sound of facts, but I, but I don't care about them actually, you know, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't have to be real. Uh, doubt. A chick has just so much time to chip its way out. Now, that's true. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Just so much egg energy to apply to the weakest spot or whatever spot it started at. It can't afford doubt. Who can? Doubt uses albumin at twice the rate of work. One backward, one backward look by any of us can cost what it cost Orpheus. Neither may you answer the stranger's knock. You know it is the person from Porlock who eats dreams for dinner. His napkin stained the most delicate colors. Uh, a quality that I admire very much, uh, and it's a maddeningly delicate one, is, is, is lightness. I would like to beat people over the head with lightness. I mean, you just can't, you know? I mean, if, if, you, if you care about lightness, you have to stay light. Uh, and yet you want to grab people by the lapels. So if this poem is called Do. And do, uh, being the, the stuff that lands on grass and whatnot, uh, uh, do is a very delicate substance, very evanescent. Um, so here it is, do. As neatly as peas in their green canoe, as discreetly as beads strung in a row, sit drops of dew along a blade of grass but unattached and subject to their weight. They slip if they accumulate. Down the green tongue, out of the morning sun, 
into the general damp, they're gone. I once wrote a, a long poem uh, haranguing on the subject of lightness. And it, it had these, these good lines. Uh, if a fairy makes a fist, who's impressed? How can lightness insist? Uh, one of the emotions that I think should be installed in the, in the pantheon of the great emotions is relief. I think it's under-celebrated. I mean, just today I lost my passport and then I found it again. The relief was palpable. Uh, relief. We know it is close to something lofty. Simply getting over being sick or finding lost property has in it the leap, the purge, the quick humility of witnessing a birth, how love seeps up and retakes the earth. There is a dreamy, wading feeling to your walk inside the current of restored riches, clocks set back, disasters averted. One of the things, I, I suppose we all talk to ourselves. I talk to myself in old sayings and bromides and saws. Uh, like, on this occasion, I was accusing myself of having painted myself into a corner, I'm sure. This poem is called Corners, and it, it, it's, uh, it's based on that idea, uh, that, that advice not to paint yourself into one. All but saints and hermits mean to paint themselves toward an exit, leaving a pleasant ocean of azure or jonquil ending neatly at the door sill. But sometimes something happens. A minor dislocation by which the doors and windows undergo a small rotation to the left a little, but repeatedly. It isn't obvious immediately. Only toward evening and from the farthest corners of the houses of the painters comes a chorus of individual keening, as of kenneled dogs someone is mistreating. I was interviewed yesterday by Jennifer Williams at the, at the Scottish Poetry Library, and we had a wonderful time. And she, she asked me, among other lovely things, it, uh, she said she'd kind of noticed that, that the baby Jesus showed up in my poems. Uh, uh, with strange frequency, you know, or, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, uh, mangery stuff. Uh, and, uh, those weren't her words. She was more elegant. Uh, uh, but, uh, I said, well, the thing was that I, I, I always made a Christmas card, which I sent to my friends, and ordinarily it was a, a rebus. My, my favorite was, uh, one year I had made a little drawing of a pickup truck with some birds in the cab and some great big, two great big forks in the back of it. Uh, and then you opened it up. And they're, they're, the, people are supposed to guess and, and they, they know that what's inside will have something to do with Christmas, probably a Christmas carol. So they open it up and it says, fork hauling birds. 
So, you know, but I, I'm not able to do that every year, you know. Uh, you know, some years I just can't reach that high. Uh, so there have been years in which uh, it's been a poem instead. So I have these various poems that, like Stars of Bethlehem and, and this one, uh, which is called uh, uh, the, uh, the Excluded Animals. And it's thinking about the animals that don't get into the manger scene. Only a certain clack of beasts is part of the crash racket. I thought that was quite daring of me to call it the, the crash racket. Uh, uh. Only a certain clack of beasts. But I had to, you know. After I'd said clack, I had to say rack, you know. Only a certain clack of beasts is part of the crash racket forming a steamy-breathed semicircle around the baby basket. Anything more exotic than a camel is out of luck this season. Not that the excluded animals envy the long-lashed sycophants. Cormorants don't toady, nor do toads adore anybody for any reason. Nor do the unchosen alligators grinning their three-foot grin as they lays in the blankety waters like the blankets on him. Uh, would you like to hear another Christmas poem? Yes. You're not tired of Christmas poems this season, so, okay. Okay, this one's called The Fourth Wise Man. You know, I thought it was very clever. I thought probably nobody had ever thought of a fourth wise man, but... <laughs> Actually, I'm not the only one. Uh, oh, and this has a couple of words in italics, that another disadvantage of speaking rather than reading. Uh, I use the word prolate, and then I define it, which is stretching vertically toward the poles. And those words are uh, in italics in, in the poem. The fourth wise man disliked travel. If you walk, there's the gravel. That's just terrible, isn't it? Uh, you have to have no shame to do a thing like that. The fourth wise man disliked travel. If you walk, there's the gravel. If you ride, there's the camel's attitude. He far preferred to be inside, in solitude, to contemplate the star that had been getting so much larger and more prolate lately, stretching vertically, like the souls of martyrs, toward the poles, or like the yawns of babies. Somebody cut out a, a picture from a, a magazine of one of those great big super oval baby, infant, infant yawns, the way they have that wonderfully prolate yawn. Uh, it's great. This is a poem for people who find it difficult to ask for help. It's written from that point of view. It's called Help. Imagine help. I mean, that won't do you any good, but you'll feel, you know, like, Maybe you have company. Uh, imagine help as a syllable, awkward but utterable. How would it work 
and in which distress? How would one gauge the level of duress at which to pitch the plea? How bad would something have to be? It's hard coming from a planet where if we needed something, we had it. Uh, once again, I was talking to myself uh, and I was, you know, I, 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 I wish I would say nicer things to myself. I seem to be generally lecturing myself. Uh, this poem is called, well, I, I think I, it, it's called Home to Roost. And it's about, it, it comes from that expression, your chickens are coming home to roost. And of course, that's always said in a really minatory way. You know, they're never good chickens, are they? It's never, never all the good things you did that are circling and coming back. Uh, it's always the stupid things. Um, so, home to roost. The chickens are circling and blotting out the day. That sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, what with the, the skills of chickens, it's <laughs> unlikely. These are kind of symbolic chickens. The chickens are circling and blotting out the day. The sun is bright, but the chickens are in the way. Yes, the sky is dark with chickens, dense with them. They turn and then they turn again. These are the chickens you let loose, one at a time, and small, various breeds. Now they have come back to, they have come home to roost, all the same kind, at the same speed. Oh, one, of, one of my favorite poets is Fernando Pessoa, the great Portuguese poet. But, you know, the, the book of his that I like the best aren't, aren't all of his uh, heteronyms, the, the various characters. He wrote, he wrote poems uh, from a variety of different personalities, which he thought of as his, his, his own in, in ways. Um, he didn't simply have one personality, he had a whole, whole set of them. Um, but I like, I love his book called uh, The Book of Disquiet. And uh, this is a line from that book that I find very moving. Um, he says, I was shipwrecked beneath a stormless sky in a sea shallow enough to stand up in. Shipwreck. They're laughable when we get there the ultimate articulations of despair. Trapped in a tub filling with our own tears, strapped to a breadstick mast a mouse could chew down, hopping around the house in paper shackles, wrist and ankle. It's always stagey. Being lost is just one's fancy, some cloth, some paste, the essence of flimsy. Therefore, we double don't know why we don't take off the Crusoe rags, step off the island, bow from the waist, accept your kudos. You want to hear that again? Yes, you do, don't you? Yes. They're laughable when we get there, the ultimate articulations of despair, trapped in a tub filling with our own tears, Strapped to a breadstick mast, 
a mouse could chew down. Hopping around the house in paper shackles, wrist and ankle. It's always stagey. Being lost is just one's fancy. Some cloth, some paste, the essence of flimsy. Therefore, we double don't know why we don't take off the Crusoe rags, step off the island, bow from the waist, accept your kudos. Another favorite author of mine is uh, W.G. Sebald, uh, the German uh, author who lived in Norwich uh, for most of his adult life and taught at the university there. Um, his patron saint, as he, he says in one of his amazing books, uh, was Saint Sebald. Saint Sebald was a, a Danish prince, I think, in the 12th century. And he, if you're a saint, you have to perform various miracles. He, he did things like he went across, he crossed a, a river on his cape. He put uh, a broken vessel back together before there was glue. Um, he did various things like that, and, and he was named a saint. But the one that interested me the most was that he lit a fire with icicles. And this poem is for W.G. Sebald, and it is titled, He Lit a Fire with Icicles. This was the work of St. Sebald, one of his miracles. He lit a fire with icicles. He struck them like a steel to flint, did St. Sebald. It makes sense only at a certain body heat. How cold he had to get to learn that ice would burn. How cold he had to stay. When he could feel his feet, he had to back away. I had a terrible time ending that poem. It took me years. I, I had a, a toaster at the end of it for a while, and something about toast, and it was just terrible. It was like this serious poem that I, had, I was giving away with a terrible pratfall joke at the end. It took me a long time to get when he could feel his feet, he had to back away. Um, funny how something little can take so long. Um, I would like to read a, a one deserty poem, since I'm actually from the Mojave Desert in California. Well, the Central Valley, when I was, when I was young, I, I lived in the Central Agricultural Valley of California, and then my, my father was an oil driller and a driller of various kinds of holes, and we moved to the Mojave Desert. And, uh, and then I was very much a desert child uh, for, for quite a while. And uh, my partner and I loved for many years to camp in the desert. And when you camp in the desert, you really like to put yourself near a feature, because one of the things is that the desert's kind of featureless. Uh, I mean, I like that about it. Uh, but you would put yourself near, say, a reservoir if there was one. Uh, and we had done that on this occasion, and I wrote the, the rough draft of this poem at a picnic table in Nevada. Um, Desert Reservoirs. They are beachless basins. You know, they're, they're artificial, right? I mean, they're, 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 they've been stuck in, in, in the desert. They are beachless basins, steep-edged catches, unnatural bodies of water wedged into canyons. Stranded anti-mirages, 
unable to vanish or moisten a landscape of cactus adapted to thrift. A wasteland to creatures who chew one another or grasses for moisture. Nothing here matches their gift. I'll bet there are lots of lighthouses around here. I, I mean, I'm guessing that there must be. I come from Marin, in Marin County, we also have a number of lighthouses. And I just like the idea of lighthouses. And, and this poem is called Lighthouse Keeping. And I think it's important to get the space in the right place because it could have been light housekeeping, right? <laughs> A job that some people have. Uh, uh. So this is lighthouse keeping. <laughs> Seas pleat, winds keen, fogs deepen, ships lean, no doubt. And the lighthouse keeper keeps a light for those left out. It is intimate and remote both for the keeper and those afloat. Here's a little poem of fairly recent vintage. Uh, it's called Train Track Figure. Now I want you to think of a train, train track going by and you're on one side of it and something's on the other side of it. Train Track Figure. Imagine a train track figure made of sliver over sliver of between-car vision, each slice too brief to add detail or deepen. That could be a hat if it's a person, if it's a person, if it's a person. Just the same scant information timed to supplant the same scant information. And I will end with, uh, with one that I wrote last week, because I thought you should get something that you couldn't get anywhere else, right? Uh, it's only fair. Uh, live should mean something, don't you think? So the great distinction that this poem has is that it's new. That's, that's its great claim. Nothing, nothing says it's going to make the cut. Uh, but it's called Breaking Things. Nothing brings exactly the same pleasure as breaking things. It must unmatch some oppressive pattern for us when something shatters. But so fleetingly, a service for eight plus terrines and platters is over in an evening. <laughs> Thank you. some water? Thank you. I should have really warned you at the beginning that there would be a little time for questions and in fact I should have given you that chance to be thinking while you were listening but it's actually very hard to um, distract yourself from Kay's reading. Um, but there is some time for questions um, and if you would like to ask one would you put up your hand and then wait till the microphone comes to you? So um, maybe while you're thinking of a question, I could ask one, and then I'm sure there's more will come. Ah, there's questions already. Yeah. Terrific. Uh, yeah. There's a lady here and this one here, please. That's great. Thank you. I, think I always think the microphone's kind of daunting, don't you? <laughs> I can't claim to be a lady, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, how and when did you know that you were a poet? 
Well, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to be a poet. To this day, I'd rather, you know, uh, I, I try to say I'm a writer, but it, it just it just causes it to to require two steps to admit that I'm a poet because then then people say, well, what do you write? And then I have to say I write poetry, so uh, I can't get out of it. But uh, I. Uh, I, I loved language from, from childhood. I was just fascinated with, with, uh, with words and with fresh ways of saying things. I, I, I liked to, uh, I, I, when I was in elementary school, I remember a private game of never wanting to say a thing the same way twice, just for my own pleasure. Um, I also, I think, thought that I was an alien because I had a little, I had a little, I had a little camera that I'd gotten out of a, a cereal box was a, it was actually a, a squirt gun camera. It was a little black. But I didn't think of it as a squirt gun camera. I thought of it as the camera I had as a person from another planet. And I was taking pictures of life on Earth. And I was saving them and recording uh, what humans did. Uh, so it may be that I felt somewhat alienated, but not in a bad sense. Um, I, I, I resisted ha a portion of my mind, but not yet half, always knew it was going to do it. Uh, gonna, uh, that I was going to write, uh, but but I didn't want to write because I didn't want to be exposed. I wanted to be a funny person. I wanted to be superficial, and I I, I truly understood that poetry has to hit all the notes. You know, I mean, it's the nature of poetry to to be the opposite of of superficial. Uh, it could be funny, but it it has to be many other things as well. So I resisted for a long time because I wanted to stay superficial and, and, and thoroughly protected. Um, but by the time I was about 30, I simply found that, that my mind was being kind of against my will, overtaken. It was writing all by itself, and it, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help it. It wasn't doing, wasn't doing it well, mind you, you know, but it was doing it. And so I, I took a bicycle ride across the United States. I thought it would be a great way to sit down you know, for a long, long time uh, and think. It was 4,000 miles uh, uh, from Oregon to Virginia. And uh, I, was, I was just going on, going on 30 at the time. And I knew I had to figure this out. I was a teacher. I was already teaching at College of Marin, had been for several years. But uh, I knew I had to figure out, I had to either say yes or no. I mean, I had to solve this. So, uh, you know, Oregon, nothing. Montana, nothing. <laughs> Wyoming, nothing. <laughs> Colorado, nothing. I'm up in the Rockies, uh, uh, going over Hoosier Pass. We're carrying all, our, all of our camping gear on the bicycle, so we're in awfully good shape by now. And it's a beautiful day. The air's thin, you know, 14,000 feet or something like that. Uh, and my mind simply enters a, an, an altered condition. Uh, and I have incredible powers uh, to think as far as I want in any direction. It's just a marvelous sense of, of mental uh, power. And, and, and I also have a sense of the, the interpenetration of all things. Like I, I could have run my hand through a pine branch if I'd wanted to. So it was a, I was in a very special condition and I knew it. Uh, and I knew it wouldn't last. Uh, and I played around with it a little bit, like a trick kite, you know, like just playing, just doing tricks. Uh, and then I thought, I, re I remembered that I had one thing that I wanted to know. And so I, I asked, and it's not like I thought I was asking somebody, I don't know, but I simply asked, shall I be a writer? 
And I got an answer that was irresistible to me, to my nature. It was just these words. Do you like it? Do you like it? It was as simple as that. It was utterly simple. That could be the dumbest possible answer or the smartest possible answer. It was absolutely perfect. I, I simply was now at the top of Hoosier Pass, going down the other side, knowing what I was going to do with the entire rest of my life, although I didn't know how I would do it, because I, I can't learn from others. I just can't learn from anybody. So uh, uh, I, had to, I had to figure it out, uh, and I had to teach myself to write. So that's when I really knew. And it was really very much accepting a calling. It was a calling. Uh, and I, I accepted it. And it has been my calling. Thank you. Um, sorry, Ooh, I have a quick question. Um, this might be phrased a little bit strangely, but um, it's kind of a question about uh, inspiration. So how, how do you feel? What kind of feelings do you get when you see a poem starting, or you kind of hear it in your head or you kind of have that moment where you you kind of just see something that catches you is there a feeling that you get uh, you're you're talking kind of as though a poem would present itself as as though it were done what i what i would get i wouldn't get ever a poem and and i when i'm not writing i absolutely don't think about writing i mean i'm i'm not one of these people who's kind of working on it all the time uh, i i only I only work on, on poems, I, 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 only, I only do that when I'm actually doing it. And I resist it. If, it, if it. if something from a poem that I've been working on and maybe having trouble with wants to enter my head when I'm not writing, I won't let it. Uh, I keep a completely kosher brain. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I won't have it. Uh, and I don't keep notebooks, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't do any of that. Um, but the way I the way I might um, I do have little little things maybe like little irritations sometimes uh, oh often uh, uh, irritations uh, um, things that I disagree with little something something in the fabric of life that I that I can't quite go along with and I think one of the things we do when we write is create a congenial world you know a, a, a world that 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 suits us. Uh, uh, I read my poems, they're quite consoling to me. Uh, but, but, so there'll be some tiny little thing that, that, I, that I barely perceive. Or I, bar I mean, I know, I know somebody said something. I like to read really smart things before I write. You know, like maybe I read Milan Kundera, Italo Covino. I like to read aesthetic essays, that sort of thing. Really, really cranked up intellectual, gorgeous language kinds of things. And, and I might find some little thing that that I take exception to, and and I want to affirm something. I mean, it's not just naysaying, but it's it's that I want to make a space for some other idea. But I, but usually, the thing that I that I sense, I I barely sense. And what I have to do is take that little thing and sort of cartoonify it, sort of enlarge it, even make. Make make a diorama of it and give it give it some kind of exaggerated body so that it becomes visible. And in a way, some of my poems are sort of fake haranguing. I mean, they seem like they're haranguing, but they're they're actually haranguing differently than they appear to be haranguing uh, uh, because they are filled with with exaggerations in the pursuit 
of something intangible, uh, like models, you know, like scientific models. They're, they're trying to build models. I don't know if that helped at all. Uh, didn't help me, I'll tell you. Uh, uh. Was this one over here, please? Um, who are your favorite poets, presumably the poets who have influenced you the most? Well, you know, I didn't read much poetry as a child. I didn't hear much either. Uh, although we had choral reading when I was in sixth grade and I just loved it. That was when everybody stood up together and, and said, said poems. Uh, 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 the whole class recited from the stage like this. Oh, it was lovely. And we did, our, our teacher was very, very Catholic in her taste. We did, we are Marianne's luncheon, yum, yummy, yum, yummy. And we're all going down to visit her tummy. I am her poached egg, I sit on her toast and wonder which fork stab will tickle the most. Well, you can see, I was very influenced by that, that poetry. Uh, but we also did, in Flanders Field, the poppies flow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. Oh, no, and in the sky, the lark still something singing fly, bravely singing fly. Well, anyhow, um, we had no idea what the First World War was or anything like that, but we, I, loved, I loved the sobriety of it, you know, the grandeur of it. So it was, my first influences were utterly eclectic. I was a comic book reader as a child. I think those influenced me a, a lot also. Uh, but when I finally got to poetry in the community college that I went to after high school, I, I, did, I was first introduced to... Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and I was utterly ravished, as, as one should be, and most people are, I think. So, so uh, Hopkin, Hopkins was a great uh, uh, enthusiasm of mine, uh, early one, and uh, John Donne, uh, of course, and uh, then my, my great teacher, Emma, uh, 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 Evelyn Foley, in the community college, uh, was this was my first literature class, and she was she was describing the syllabus the first day, and she said, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to teach. Yeah, I've got I've got Emily Dickinson on the syllabus, but I don't know if I'm going to teach her this semester, because last semester, the students so ravaged her, so mangled her, and she means so much to me that I don't think I can bear it." And so I don't think I will. So I, of course, went right out and got <laughs> Emily Dickinson. Uh, I, I knew that she was going to be somebody important, and and I was really thrilled. Uh, I think, looking back on it, I think what was so exciting to me at that time, at say 19, about about Emily Dickinson, and I, I think two things. One was I was truly thrilled with those rhymes. She, her, she's an incredible off-rhymer and rhymer. Uh, just thrilling. And I also loved the fact that she made of the mind a place. It was, it was, it was a place unto itself. It had its own dramas. You didn't have to go out anywhere. There was an entire world which she made, she animated fantastically. And in it, uh, it, was, it, was, it was powerful to find somebody so mighty, so mighty and so strange. I'm afraid we have to stop there. Um, Kay's going to give us one last poem to go out on because I want you to hear her voice, obviously not mine. So I'm going to say on your behalf, 
a very warm thanks to Kay for a, a, a wonderful hour. You know, she wrote an essay in which she talked about poets writing for two reasons, and one is the very uh, solitary reason that you're writing to please the dead, is what she said. And on the other hand, you're writing for la gloire, which comes from holding an audience. And I've seen you, as I was myself, held this evening. So I can't speak for the dead, but for the living, it has been a wonderful, wonderful hour. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. You guys are so great, you're almost as good as the dead. Uh, okay, I'll take you out with Pentimenti. Uh, and, and this has an epigraph from the, the Frick Museum in, uh, in New York City, wonderful museum. Pentimenti of an earlier position of the arm may be seen. Now, Pentimenti, that's a word for things which a painter has painted out, has repented. It comes from, from the word repent. And it has repented of, the, of that idea and has done it differently. But in time, those things become visible again. And those are called pentimenti. All right, this is a spooky poem. It's not simply that the top image wears off or goes translucent. Things underneath come back up, having enjoyed the advantages of rest. That's the hardest part to bear, how the decided against fattens one layer down, free of the tests applied to final choices. In this painting, for instance, see how a third arm, long ago repented by the artist, is revealed, working a flap into the surface through which who knows what exiled cat or extra child might steal. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.